You are tuned in to the PBE podcast where we're taking new information, applying it to new real world applications to make discoveries. We got to stop and take a minute and thank our sponsors, BRT Energy Advisors, Better Reservoir Technologies, Results Without the BS. We've had Alan on our show and I can tell you from experience, he definitely has seen seismic from around the world, including of course, right here in the Permian Basin. If you are in the EMP business and you want to use seismic data to increase the value of your asset, or if you want to drill safer wells at lower costs using seismic, then you got to get a hold of Alan Bertain and work with his team at BRT Energy Advisors. If you check out our podcast from episode 70, you'll see that not only he understands geophysics, business, and people, but he also explains complicated subjects in a clear and simple way. Visit them at www.brtenergy.com forward slash PBE. Three, Three two, two, one. one. Let's go! Oh, yes! Right. To the PBE Podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, joined by none other, of course, this Matt the Skip, Sippy Own, and the PBE Podcast. We have Mike Rains joining us today, 21 years and, and continuing to build that career and sustain mm-hmm. this career. And an absolute, it's just a fantastic show, in my opinion. I love the man. He was a huge inspiration for me as a, a professional, a young professional going into societies, trying to figure things out. We talk about it in the show. But before then, Skip, catch up, man. P- PhD, are you kidding me? I want to know what what did you learn last week, dude? Just diving into more and more for me, where I feel like I'm the weakest, and that's the the isotopic dating and and the different methodologies, and you know where you can see positives and where you see negatives when you're doing uranium zircon dating, specifically in like different sedimentary rocks. But uh, yeah, just having my mind blown, right? Because for me, like my background a lot of petroleum seismic uh structure and so this whole area like the geochrome field is just brand new to me and it's just all these different terms and just kind of diving into all of that but it's been a blast man i mean just cool yeah a lot of fun sounds like age dating sedimentary rocks i mean that's that's new con i mean that's new concept isn't it yeah well it's it's for more of like a provenance purpose, right? So you're understanding, okay, uh, the provenance for this specific sandstone, right? Or is this, you know, you know, from an orogenic event, like this mountain that was over here, or is this something that's being recycled through time? Like, oh, this is actually, you know, a sandstone that existed that got re-eroded and redeposited here. And like being able to take, like tell by the different grains, or is this like proximal volcanics that were close by and all this other stuff. And it's just like, what really makes these different formations. And then when you talk about the bottom up process, how does that change the whole thing as well? So it's like, Oh, we're, we're getting some like weird clinochlor crystals in here. What's, what's going on with that? Like that's, that's, that shouldn't have been there. So (laughs) fascinating, man. Absolutely fascinating. I can't, I'm always excited to hear and catch up. We usually do it just on the shows uh, with where the PhD is going, man. Where is it? just evaluating this bit you get the whole basin from basement to surface right that's oh yep yeah just a huge huge area and right now like i said it's more just background work for me before i really start i mean i've looked at the data but it's i i need to understand you know the geology of the study area before i start you know any kind of high level interpretation at all what's the name of the basin again uh the aramanga basin aramanga yeah it's part of the great artesian basin and uh like Queensland, Australia. So it's, yeah. So basically Northeast Australia, it is gigantic 
but uh that's that's kind of the beauty of it man it's just instead of being focusing down on one little area the area it just keeps expanding and expanding so wow yeah it's been start interpreting from the moon and make your way in (laughs) exactly exactly think big and then go small that's that's the way i like to interpret well i'm not dude Dude, what's going on with you dude you're in texas you're you're looking at wells you're doing all kinds of fun things over there yeah go ahead and back to texas you're pretty soon i got uh yeah picked up a lease started a little oil and gas company and started just yes very very interesting i love the smell of it i love the idea that you get a you really do get to listen to the reservoir you get a lit you know you're you're just ah it, it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating wish i had more rock data and all that stuff but i'm starting to get familiar with the area the other operators i mean it's it's definitely a very interesting development uh professionally just everything about starting your own company and doing all that all that dealing with the railroad commission mm-hmm. Everything about it has been very, very interesting. But then I come back to Arizona. I'm staking claims. I was going to say, I'm not a physical guy. I mm-hmm. like you, know, you work out every day. You squat houses for fun. I don't do that kind of stuff. I like to sit in front of the computer, challenge myself intellectually to the nth degree, and I don't really work out. So I had to stake claims two days ago. I'm <laughs> sore, man. How's the back doing? How's the back doing? Back's holding up. Back's holding okay. up. So, okay. Okay. There's a positive in there. There, there is a positive there. There, <laughs> there is a positive. It's a good soreness. It's a good soreness this time. Oh, dude, it was something else. We had a quad. We were staking. I mean, it was, I brought my dad out with me. <laughs> Fascinating, man. Copper molybdenum play. Uh, just incredible geology. Matt, seeing it, you know, staking it. Uh, man, having a lot of fun in the mining industry too, and and learning a ton about that whole side of geology. Mm-hmm. Um, just pushing forward man but we have mike rains today mm-hmm. on legend. The, a legend from the permian basin uh born in the permian basin is that correct no not born in the permian basin born in the panhandle yeah just yeah. north That's right i forgot about that we were close uh <laughs> the last show we were talking about how many people have been on this show have you thought of a number yet skips i mean we need to track this down we how need many? to track this i'll 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 go through the archives we'll we'll figure it out <laughs> yeah yeah, I was pretty impressed with somebody born in Slayton. Uh, yeah, on the show, you knew that what? Well, Mr. Rains, welcome to the PB Podcast, and let's talk about the show. What dropped out for you, sir, from this show? What are you excited about the most for 2021, 2022? We're pushing forward post COVID. Where are you at? How's everything going? Now, from the society side, I'm uh, most excited about. Uh, the new developments that are going to uh, stay with us thanks to COVID, like having online options for people, being able to have remote access. Uh, if you're out on the well site and you missed this uh, lunch and talk, huh, maybe you didn't miss it. Maybe you can uh, get on that rig Wi-Fi and hopefully it'll be enough bandwidth that you can get in and watch the society events live. Right. Or uh, if you can get them uh, recorded later. Uh, so, so from the society side, I'm really excited about uh, something that we developed because we had to mother necessity mm-hmm. uh, things uh, came about because we had to have them about, and now those are going to be good for us in the future. They're going to make access easier. I don't think they're going to detract from our in-person uh, situations because you really don't get the full networking like skips uh, talking about that you miss that with the online, but you can still have that and uh, have the best of both worlds by getting something mm-hmm. recorded or being uh, remotely accessing things. So 
negative from the COVID is going to turn out to be a positive for everybody in the future, on, mm-hmm. on that, at least on that aspect. Yep. Yeah, from uh, the industry side and the carbon capture use and storage, uh, I'm excited about the changes uh, in the tax code that I think are going to lead to more uh, easy to implement programs. And so I think we'll see an expansion of CCS and CCUS as we learn how to navigate all these issues and to bring together uh, emitters, transporters, compressors, and storage sites, and Mm -hmm. and hopefully uh, use sites also so that that CO2 is not just wasted by being shoved in the ground, but we get something from it also, and then keep it in the ground for later. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Skippo, what'd you get? What dropped out for you? I was going to say for, for me, my, my favorite part of the show was Mike going into, you know, his, you know, his professional history and talking about what he was doing with, you know, Kinder Morgan uh, and Whiting. And then specifically when you were talking and you broke down the operations of not only a CO2 flood, but what is happening with the CO2 at a reservoir scale, explaining the differences between oil wet and water wet, and then breaking down actually how that CO2 is scrubbing that oil from the rock in an oil wet reservoir, even though it's not only applied in oil wet systems, as, as you mentioned. But yeah, this, this show was a blast. And then especially talking about the societies and how they've been evolving, forced, forced to evolve because of COVID. But like you said, these changes are actually all for the positive in the long run. Right now we're giving people more options to be a member, to be part of the community, right? Just because, you know, you're not physically in Midland doesn't mean that you can't be attending these luncheons, like so, so and so forth going forward. Yeah. And as you guys probably know, we have a lot of our membership in the uh, two local societies in Midland that actually live in Houston and Mm -hmm. some that live in uh, New Orleans or uh, Baton Rouge or, Mm -hmm. and then a few that live uh, scattered out beyond that, uh, Mm -hmm. Kansas, uh, California, Mm -hmm. uh, even back East, a few. So they have been isolated from uh, being able to participate in all the luncheons and things unless they make a special trip out to Midland. So this is going to be something that would uh, help ease that. And you don't have to come out here physically anymore. You can uh, still participate and stay at home at the same time. Mm -hmm. And if I can't, uh, if you don't mind me throwing in a little plug here, you both talked about topics that we've had at PBS SEPM uh, this year. In December, we had a Zircon dating talk, uh, and that one's uh, free out there on the web. You can mm-hmm. go look at it for, for nothing. That was, uh, I'm looking it up right now. University of Texas <laughs> at Arlington uh, talk. And then uh, in March, we had uh, Casey Mitchell, who you you guys might not, bet you for sure, Troy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talked about uh, going from college student to independent operator in a short time. Uh, last just I guess that was last month yeah yeah last month so uh, two topics for two of you that came up (laughs) in the same interview uh, so there's absolutely uh, we didn't plan that right guys yeah that's right not planned at all that's right it's the magic of getting together it's the magic of getting either even virtually uh, I want to start with just an appreciation. I want to thank you, Mike Rains, for having an impact on my career as a young professional. I didn't know where I was doing, what I was going, and nothing. But you were you were always so easy to be approached to and speak with, and that was huge for me. I, I really do have a great memory, and I look forward to staying connected and, and 
continuing on with you as a professional and as a friend. Uh, so thank you for joining the show and doing this with us. I had a great time. I have three things. Try to keep focused here. The first one is the, about the societies and about this post COVID thing. I've always said, stay connected. You got to stay connected to the young professionals or to the grad students. And when you have an opportunity to now to visit a live luncheon and you can ask questions. You gotta engage. So if you can't physically be there and people have talked about how, dude, I went and get, did uh, mud logging and it took me away from the community. Well, now post COVID, that's not necessarily the case. You can still make good money mud logging, be out there on location and still make the talk and engage in the talk. You have to make a presence. You have to raise your hand. You have to be uncomfortable, but your name will get recognized. You will be recognized. Your curiosity will be appreciated no matter what. I love that. And he made a, a very good, good point about the societies after COVID and what's, what's to come there. It gives us more opportunity to engage. So I love that. Uh, the, the business of carbon capture and carbon use, uh, I think that's creating incredible amount of jobs, regulatory jobs, jobs for the engineers, the geophysicists, the geologists, geoscientists. Uh, I think that's fascinating. I love that there's a positive thing going on there. Opportunity and inspiration and alignment. That's, uh, that's, that's fantastic to hear. And then the third thing that I had that Skips was talking about is really this physics and chemistry of changing the interfacial tension in the reservoir with a car, with the, the CO2 flooding. What exactly is happening there? I get a feeling that it's some kind of quantum physics going on. You are changing interfacial tension of this fluid. So if you don't mess with it, it reacts one way. If you mess with it, it starts acting a totally different way, but very predictive. It's always going to change interfacial tension. Why is that happening? What is the chemistry? What is the physics there? How can we better develop this idea with new modern concepts and modern geologic context? I mean, I'm fascinated with this and I'm totally going to stay glued to you and the carbon story. How do people stay connected with you? What's the easiest way? Is it through your website, your company, LinkedIn? How, how do we stay connected with Mike Rains? Probably LinkedIn is the easiest way. Uh, I do have uh, my email contact on the Permian Basin section, SEPM.org uh, website. So you can uh, look it up there if you, if you like email better. But LinkedIn probably is the easiest, most convenient one. The 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 plotter. Okay, so yeah, the plotter story. Yeah, this this will little context behind this. I fly into Midland. I'm visiting. I'm staying with Troy because new Troy from undergrad. I I got into UTPB for graduate school, and I wasn't sure yet. I didn't know if I, I was gonna. This was gonna be my first choice. I was still looking at some other schools. Uh, was that? I don't know if this is the first or the second day. I want to say it was this. I, I think it was, it was the first day. I think you hadn't even. Uh, I think it was the first day. So, the... so I, I, yeah, I landed in Midland International, and uh -huh. I will refer to it as Midland International. Uh, Troy Midland picks me up. Yeah, Troy, and then Troy, Troy goes on and goes to tell me, "Hey, uh, I got to run and do this thing real quick, but I need you to help out a friend of mine move this giant printer." out of this building. And I, for me, I was, I was just like, okay, like, is this how things usually go here? Are we all just moving printers around? And uh, it turns out get dropped off at the, uh, the building. Uh, and lo and behold, first person, first other geo I meet in Midland is the legend Mike Rains. As we struggle to get a plotter wedged into this elevator out into the lobby. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was quite an experience, but it was, 
I mean, that was the first time we met. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure, and I'm sure you were like, I don't know who this kid is. I I don't know what's going on, but he's here to help me. I trust Troy, but you know, (laughs) I don't know. I didn't know if I trusted Troy because I just, uh, he didn't show up (laughs) with somebody else. Delegator. Yeah, delegator. delegator. That was your first uh, foray into management, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Then we are officially entering the conception part of the PBE podcast with Mr. Mike Rains. And Skippo, I say this with confidence and without reservation, Mike Rains is a legend of the Permian Basin. When I showed up, he was one of the first guys I met. He was instantly a mentor in, in how the societies work and kind of understanding what your role is as a professional to support the society, how you get into it. Why would you even get into it? We've had great conversations at these different events and we'd go to the Southwest section meeting in January every year and listen to that, you know, the talk that the, the, the WTGS and Southwest section put together in Abilene every year. Like that was oh, yeah. always, it was the Bill, the Bill Haley, right? Memorial short course. Haley Memorial short course, right? Oh, that's the best one, man. That's my favorite short course. Out of all the short courses I've been to, the one with Postman Tier was still the best short course I've ever been to. I'm sure. Well, we're glad to hear that. And yeah, (laughs) that's one that changes every year. So Mm -hmm. you can't just go back in the next January and catch it again. Oh, you got to catch them when they come around. Oh, yeah. That's right. And it's evolving. The, the science is evolving. The technology is evolving. The engineering is evolving. The targets are evolving. If you're not present at these events and in these conventions, you are not present. You're thinking of, of something else and you might be stuck in a rut. You need to get out. You need to be involved in these societies because it's always oh, yeah. there's always some new perspective and new ideas and all the conversations. So I was instantly tied into, whoa. What is this society stuff? How do I, how does this help me as a professional? And then I realized, I'm like, well, it, obviously it's because of all these different perspectives and all the different, inter- like the, the, every meeting, every talk is always something very interesting at these conventions. And so it's worth its weight in gold and investing your time and attention and even your money into the local societies to help sustain that and provide a place where we can go as geoscientists to challenge new ideas and, and just catch up with old friends. And we're doing it virtually, Mr. Rains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another thing that happens, go ahead. Uh, for the most part, we, we can talk about that in a minute. Yes. Another thing that happens is you don't always get a great opportunity to go, how did it go for you? How did you start? Where did you get your degree? What was your first few jobs as your 21 go ongoing career, 21 year ongoing career that you're in? How did that all happen? Now we get the chance to do it. And I'm excited for this moment. I'm excited to go down into the details and listen to your story, Mr. Reigns, please. And, and And not to, not to cut you off and not to cut you off either, Mike, but to also reiterate, this is those luncheons those conferences all those things that we went to is kind of what birthed this podcast in the first place right that's where we developed our relationships with the other professionals in midland and then that's where we grew our networking circle was through these different events that was thrown on and i know mike you were basically there at every event i went to and just being a staple and being that more or less being one of those foundational members for all of these different societies in midland was humongous and not to cut you off, but yeah. Where did the school start? Where did your geology love start? Where did the young professional career take you? Let's, let's, let's listen to this. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I didn't know it originally. It took me a while to find geology as a uh, official uh, college degree that you could get. Um, my college career started off uh, as a music major, but my geology interest, uh, when I think back about it now, uh, goes back to as young as I can remember. I always liked to play in the garden. We lived out in the country. We had a, a big garden. We had a rock driveway. So I'm always uh, picking up rocks, uh, busting them in incorrect ways, uh, digging in the garden, making dams, uh, diverting the water flow to this plant and that plant, try to uh, change the way the, the system works in there and just playing around with it. Uh, now I know that was geology, but at the time I was just playing in the mud and in the dirt and uh, finding cool rocks in the driveway. Well, thank you, mom and dad, for allowing you to play in the rocks. Yes. Yeah. So once I got into college, though, uh, music major, music education, I just couldn't quite find my niche that fit exactly right. Uh, and uh, so I ended up, I've been in here a long time. I don't have a degree. Uh, where am I going with this? Oh, what the heck? I'll just get a general studies degree. So, oh, you have to have some extra science. Well, what sciences do I want? I already had chemistry. Um, I've already had a biology. Uh, what's, what's this one? Uh, it's a survey of earth sciences. Uh, uh, Dr. Savell. I'll take that. I'll take that with Dr. Savell and see how it goes. I love that class. We had meteorology, oceanography, geology, geography. Wow. Uh, and it all just made sense. It was uh, easy to understand and to learn. Uh, some of the people around me were saying, gosh, this is so hard. Why is this? I can't understand these concepts. But, but to me, it was like, yes, this stuff all fits. It makes perfect sense. So uh, next semester, I found out they have scholarships in the geology program. Oh, 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 oh yes. So <laughs> sign me up. Uh, I'm on to that. So what? that's how I got started into geology as my, uh, oh, what, third or fourth junior year or something like that. Oh. <laughs> Hey, kind of similar. I started, yeah, end of sophomore year. So yeah, my last two years of undergrad, I switched from Dr. Rastopathy to geology. Way better. <laughs> uh, so what, tell me about the country. You said you grew up in the country. What ex specifically, what part of the country? And then your undergrad, was that OU or was that just master's at OU? Uh, master's was at OU. Uh, undergrad was uh, West Texas State University at the time. Now it's uh, West Texas A&M. And that happened... Uh, the year I graduated, that was the transition. So my degree actually says West Texas State University, a division of Texas A&M. So it, it was in the transitional period there. Uh, so undergrad was at West Texas State and I grew up in that area. That's in Canyon outside of Amarillo. And I grew up in Pampa, east of Amarillo. Wow. So uh, another little geology tie-in with that area is that there's some some canyons out maybe a mile from my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And as a kid back then, you could ride your bike around pretty freely without too much worry. Uh, and there weren't as many trucks driving 90 miles an hour down <laughs> a, a country road. Wow. Uh, so I had access to those canyons through a couple county roads and uh, our main road. Uh, so I like to spend some time driving up and down the what I now know are lease roads. To me, back then they were just dirt roads, but <laughs> now I recognize that those are lease roads. Wow, that's uh, just uh, fascinating to see all the layers. Yeah. Sorry. So, so Aladuro Basin 
is where all that activity is up there with mm -hmm. the Amarillo involved, or is that granite wash with the Anadarko? Uh, the that's the granite wash in uh, in that particular area up there. This is Gray County, Paladero Canyons, a couple counties south. Okay. Uh, but this is all part of the same bigger system. Cool, Skippo. Well, I was going to say, so you finish your undergrad at quote unquote West Texas A and M, and then. Now, when, when was that, was that transition immediate to OU or was it, you know, you took like a gap year, try to figure it out? Because I know for me, I, I wanted, I knew I loved geology, but I didn't know what route I wanted to take. And that's what kind of led me to West Texas. But for you, was it immediate or did you have to, you know, sit back and think about it for a while? Well, because of the way I started and the way classes fell, I was uh, graduating in December and uh, couldn't really start the program until August at grad school at University of Oklahoma. So I took that semester to do some leveling courses, uh, get a uh, few things that were missing that they required that we didn't require or that I knew could transfer and took a few classes in that interim, that spring semester, and then started in the fall with everybody else at, at OU. Uh, wow. So I looked at a, a few courses or a few options uh, around and. Uh, they were all good options. None of them were uh, lower quality than the other necessarily. I just yeah. felt like that that one fit me and fit my lifestyle a little better and wasn't uh, so far from home. Uh, going to the next state over was closer than going to some of the in-state schools. And they were able to balance that uh, cost difference by uh, giving me some uh, TA programs and RA uh, options. Was it already? I'm, I'm sorry. That's just crazy to think about. Uh, just going a state over is closer than going to other schools in state. Just the, the size of Texas. It just still blows my mind. Yeah. Well, here's some trivia for you along those lines since I'm <laughs> from the Amarillo area. Amarillo is closer to six other state capitals than it is to Austin. What the? <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a fun trivia question. <laughs> that is a fun <laughs> Wow. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Yeah. Six other states? Yeah, six other states. Wow. So, yeah, uh, okay. Was it already the Conical Phillips geology and geophysics at that time, or did that come later? Uh, it was, it was, uh, that was later, but in that general time frame, not, not long after that. Uh, and I believe that was maybe 90, 95 or 96, and I was graduating. Uh, by the end of 95. Wow. Wow. Exciting, man. And you, you were going in, you knew oil and gas was going to be the, the, uh, the route coming out of OU. No, no. I had no idea. Uh, all of my electives and all of my uh, engineering required courses were all focused toward environmental or water resources, because mm. this is uh, coming into the mid nineties. By the time I'm graduating, uh, Texaco here in Midland, for example, hadn't hired anyone in seven years in geology, and it had been three or four years uh, since that one hire before they'd hired other people. So I had no idea, no uh, concept, and not a significant amount of interest that oil and gas would be something that would make a career for me. Instead, I was thinking it was water, water resources, and maybe waste disposable, waste disposal uh, management, something like that. Wow. So, 
Well, Texaco's the first gig, right? You get hired by Texaco. Yeah, that- I got a summer, yeah, I got a summer internship with Texaco. And that was uh, summer 95. And by the end of the uh, internship, I had maybe written three pages on my dissertation. Uh, so they came to me about mid-August and said, you know what, we, we like your work. We would be willing to offer you a position, but you haven't finished your thesis. So we really can't do anything with you right now. So uh, between then and October, I wrote 160 more pages to finish up my thesis and, and went to work for them at the about Halloween at 95. Wow. So it's all about motivation and, <laughs> and time. I didn't have anything else to do. Uh, I could work on writing a thesis for eight hours a day at that point. Uh, what was the thesis on? Uh, low temperature gypsum dissolution kinetics. And what? then I had uh, one chapter on de-dolatomization, which is when you have dolomite existing and you get the right fluid conditions, you can actually dissolve the dolomite and right. precipitate out uh, different. Wow. You know, wow. That fits with the Permian Basin. We have not all like the gypsum, right? And in, in the northwest shell or the uh, the eastern shelf for sure is a gypsum funny little thing going on there. The oil's working its way around the gypsum, it seems like, and you want to get in there and in those pockets and find it. But then you're talking about d- dissolving dolomite with the right brine, I'm guessing. The right water. more more fresh water. I mean, fresher than what we drink here in Midland anyway. You remember that. Uh, whoa. So it unlocks the magnesium and calcium and release, what is it, release some CO2 when you hit it with fresh water? You know what? It's been so long. That's 20-something years ago that uh, <laughs> I have to go back and reread my own thesis to remember <laughs> what, what we were looking at back then. Well, what's interesting about the gypsum, I remember from the Eastern Shell, not to spin off into something that doesn't really matter, but it does because the Eastern Shells are prolific reservoir the gypsum was like a it was almost a depth uh sweet spot thing right and and a little bit deep you don't get it you start showering up all of a sudden gypsum pops in yeah about if i remember right about three thousand feet or so your gypsum gets uh converted into anhydrite so it just uh, loses the water and then that saves so many problems on your log interpretation uh, with uh, the false readings that the water that's locked in the calcium sulfate causes on yeah. the logging analysis. Wow, interesting. Where does the water go, you think, from the gypsum to anhydrite process? Yeah, it's uh, uh, physically, where is it going? Or you mean... Uh, uh, Doesn't It's fresh water, right? That's, that's breaking off yeah. that transition? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, just uh, compressed and heated out of the rock. So it's, it's there in the formation. It's just migrating. It's just like dewatering of a shell, but uh, with a different cause. Wow. Interesting. Very interesting. Cool. So that fits. That migrated off now. It's not there anymore. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So you got Texaco giving you the opportunity. You finish your thesis. It seems like you're definitely ready to apply some things to the Permian Basin. Is that where Texaco takes you right away? That's, yes. That's where they took me right away. My first uh, project well, my intern project, which I uh, did a little bit more on as my first actual project, was uh, looking at the drinkard formation uh, in New Mexico. Uh, that's uh, just below Tub, 
yeah equivalent or clear fork equivalent in texas Uh uh-huh the uh the um Gosh, I'm thinking of the other ones above it that are real juicy for Concho for many years. What's right above the tub and all that? The Blindberry, Glorietta. Yeah, Blindberry Paddock. Mm-hmm. AB. Wow. Yep. Okay, so you got the quads right there to help you with the reef. Yeah. Who's down there has a little bit of tub and all that stuff. So you got mm-hmm. outlets to work with. You got an objective. What uh, What did you get into as a, as a young geologist? What was your responsibility? Well, that's funny that you should mention that. So the, the drinker field that I'm working on is in vacuum field, which is in central Lee County, New Mexico. Yeah. And, uh, after I'd been there maybe six or seven months, my, my mentor, his name is Roger Cole. He, uh, moved to Houston to work on the Szechuan basin in China. So, uh, there's 13 stacked horizons in this interval we're in not a hiring freeze, but a slow hiring situation. So uh, I had 13 horizons, 13 fields stacked together, uh, thrown at me until we could get a, somebody else in there. And here I am, uh, just graduated six month experience. Don't know yeah. what I'm doing. Fresh Fairly off an drive my way to the field. <laughs> uh, but it was a hey, great experience and, because I learned a lot. I was going to say right into the fire. I mean, th- those yeah. are the situations where you, I mean, for me, I feel like that's where you learn the most when you're under, you don't want to be under that stress all the time, but when you're thrown into those situations, then all of a sudden you could start finding correlations a lot faster because you're so ingrained in all that data. Yes. Yeah. You see it all and you have the work from people before you uh, to compare and contrast Uh, Oh, look, everybody agrees on this. So maybe that's something that I can be pretty confident in. I'll start with Mm -hmm. that uh, and work your way from there. Get to see the course. Uh, Troy, I know that, you know, Emily Stout. Uh, Skip, I don't know. Did you ever get to meet Emily? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, She she became my mentor on the core analysis and (laughs) on uh, production in general uh, and couldn't ask for uh, a more in-depth, deep understanding she scared the crap out of me, of course, but <laughs> as, a, as a new hire. But yeah, Emily was uh, one of the best things that that happened to my career. Wow, she trained wow. me up. Wow, I share in that statement with you, Mr. Rain. She was the first person I met from UTPB, and she was so huge in the development of me going to the Permian Basin, and and, and the rest is history. Love that lady. Um, so yeah. here's some more trivia for you. Uh, she was one of the key players, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but she was one of the key players in the development of what is now the Permian Basin section of SEPM, new hire, intern, uh, a young professional field trip uh, that goes out annually, which yep. uh, I don't know if either one of you got to participate in one of those in the years that you were here, but it's a really amazing program. And some of the roots of that uh, come from the work that Emily did with Susan Longacre when they were both uh, Texaco EPDD, which is their uh, exploration and production technology uh, division. So that's a research group. Wow. So those two, and they combined, of course, with Bob Trinum and yeah. the things that he had been doing uh, at Gulf and Chevron and uh, Robert Campbell, and they brought all that stuff together. But I don't want to get too much into what's uh, to come later, but that's the roots 
And that's some of the people that I was uh, uh, able to be influenced by early on in my career. And seeing all these connections and having the chance to learn from all of these people, uh, it was really, really great for me. Wow. We hear this often, and I don't know if this resonates with you, but it was like the first few years of boots on the ground and really diving in, that is like the platform for the rest of your career. What you learn and what you get into in the first few years is that's where you you really apply that and you just dive through the rest of your career with that. Is that true with you? Yeah, I think that's true. And and the mindsets that you get while you're doing that, uh, Mm -hmm. things that you are capable of, things that you're not capable of in your own mind, kind of get set with that. And if you're thrown into something that you don't even know what you can handle and can't handle, so you just try it, uh, and you have guidance from people to give you some confidence and to uh, point you in the right direction, that's one of the key things. So mentors, mentoring, and being mentored, those all are what connects this and helps you build that foundation and makes your life a lot easier if you get that. And I will have to say for Texaco, that was... Uh, one of the best things about working for Texaco is I got to see a wide variety of technologies, tests, application, research, and uh, cooperation. Wow. Whenever I came into the oil industry, I had this idea that uh, you have your Texaco over here, you have your Exxon over there, you have your Shell here, and no one works with each other and no one does anything and everyone is kept siloed from each other. But when I actually got here, uh, well, no, you have a lease line project with Exxon. You have a, a joint venture with Shell. You have all these things where everyone does have to work together. Yeah. And so that was not uh, what my impression was coming into the oil industry. So that's one thing that I can say. Uh, we may keep secrets from each other, but we're also able to work together too. Wow. Right on. All right. You get through Texaco and you start transitioning. Your next step is Kinder Morgan. How did that happen? Sandridge to Whiting for so many years. And, and if I'm correct, um, and I was going to say this in the beginning, this idea where you go to the societies, you get to meet them, you don't, you kind of hear, you go, ah, my friends, of course, I always see them, always meet with them, always talk to them. But you end up hearing about other people's careers from other people, it seems like sometimes. <laughs> so you start hearing, oh, yeah, rains with a CO2 flood and carbonates. And, you know, you start hearing that. This is the first time I get to hear it from you. How does this, that transition, several different companies, 21 years ongoing career. Take us through that. Yeah, so let's see. So uh, at Texaco, the transition to, well, you have to understand one other thing before this. Uh uh, when I first came to Texaco uh, on that Queen project, I was working with an engineer who was getting close to retirement age. His name is Charles Wally. And Charles told me a very wise thing. He said, uh, look around at all these people that you see. All these faces will be the same. It's just the names above their door that will change. And that has been true my whole career, starting with this Texaco transition. So... Uh, by the time I left Texaco, we had moved from uh, everything was strictly asset team based to a combination of the CO2 floods being in a group while still associated with their asset teams. So my uh, engineer, my reservoir engineer that was working on the CO2 group with me in my old North Hobbs asset team uh, also transitioned to Kinder Morgan. So we went together uh, 
over to Kinder Morgan to start working on the Sakharov project, which at that time uh, it was experiencing a transition from Pins Oil to Pins Energy to Devon. And uh, Devon wasn't really in the CO2 business. They're mainly at that time a gas company. And this was something that wasn't really in their core competency, they didn't think. So they were willing to get rid of it. Uh, Kinder Morgan was the pipeline provider for CO2 to the Sackrock unit. Uh, so they were in a situation where their number one customer is suddenly someone who's uh, not, not focused on what they do and it um, may or may not impact their sales. So they decided to make an offer to Devon and took over the Sackrock unit. Wow. So Scott and I joined them to help get that off the ground on, from the Kinder Morgan perspective yeah. and to modernize the way they were doing the CO2 flood and, and try to expand it. Yeah. Improve Quick that infrastructure, up. make it more efficient. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and change, change the flooding process itself. Yeah. Change the flooding process itself. We're talking about sending gas, CO2 gas into the reservoir, right? It's not a liquid. Right. Now, uh, I guess I should talk about why you would even want to do that. So, uh, and what it's called. So no. that's enhanced oil recovery uh, has a couple different things. So primary production, that's when you first uh, discover a field and you produce it using its own energy. Yep. Uh, at some point that energy has dissipated and you can't get the oil and gas to the surface anymore under its own power. So you do something which typically is water flooding. So that's secondary, mm -hmm. uh, secondary recovery. So, and then at some point your water cut gets so high that you can't afford to lift the oil and lift all that water with it and re-inject the water and handle it all, dispose of it, whatever you have to do with it. So at that point you move to what's called tertiary production. So enhanced oil recovery falls in that tertiary category. And there's several different things that uh, encompass EOR, but one of those things is CO2 injection. So how CO2 injection works is you pump the CO2 in the ground and when it's um, above a certain temperature and pressure, it becomes like a fluid. It doesn't have all the properties of fluid, but it's not uh, properties of a gas either. Like a vapor, uh, condensate of some kind? A condensate, it, you can actually pump it uh, when it's at the right temperature and pressure. And of course, the higher the temperature is, the uh, higher the pressure has to be to compensate yeah. for that. Uh, and the lower the temperature is, the less that pressure has to be. But when you're dealing with the reservoir, uh, some something under 3,500 feet, say, you can have that gas be in its liquid form. And when you pump that liquid gas into the reservoir, it does a couple of things. It uh, swells the oil that it contacts. So that, of course, makes it take more space, which means it's got to flow because it can't stay in the same space at a bigger size. And it strips off the light ends. And as long as you have that- The light end hydrocarbons, is that what you said? But the right. light- The lighter ends of the hydrocarbon strings. Wow. So you uh, can move that oil a lot easier now. And the third key thing that it does there is uh, you know how oil and water don't mix and you get the, the significant barrier between them. When you have CO2 present and it's in the miscible phase, 
that means it's it's in the, the liquid phase and it can be a single fluid with the oil and water that are in the reservoir. Then it uh, wipes out that surficial or interfacial tension. And so the oil can now suddenly move freer also. So you have a variety of mechanisms that help you move the oil that was stuck and mm -hmm. get it out and move it on over to your producers. So Mike, not to cut you off again, but can you, cause I want to hear it from you. Uh, can you define the difference between a reservoir that is oil wet versus a reservoir that is water wet for our listeners? I think the uh, simplest thing is uh, to think about what's actually in contact with the rock itself. Mm -hmm. If you have a dry rock uh, and you put the first fluid that it's contacting with right up against that, is that oil or water? Mm -hmm. uh, if it's oil, then that's an oil wet system. And that means that oil coats the entire inside of this lining. And so that means that oil is going to flow a certain way in there. Mm -hmm. And if you have it all with water contacting it, then water is the preferential uh, fluid and things are flowing relative to what that water will allow. So that's the simplest way for me to think about it. You want water wet rock. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is the most common. Yeah. Mm. So can you also explain that how the C like you're saying the CO2 itself can help scrub that oil wet rock. So essentially that oil that's, you know, captured in the pores and these little divots within, you know, these grains in the subsurface, how can the CO2 help free those, uh, free that oil? Okay. Well, let's back up one second. So okay. this is, this is not a process just for oil wet reservoirs. Oh, yeah. Most of the reservoirs that are uh, used with CO2 flooding are actually water wet, but the, the idea is still the same. You have a partial pore space and you have some oil in here, but this rim is all, I guess I should do it this way. This rim is all water. Yep. So this oil is not very mobile. It's got all the interfacial tension in here. When you put the CO2 in there with it, suddenly these two become one unit and they all flow as one. So if volumetrically it was 50% oil, 50% water, but only the water would move before, now you can move both of them together as a single unit. So that's, that's awesome. I think that was the best explanation I've ever had for oh, yeah. CO2 flooding versus oil. I mean, I always hear these overcomplicated explanations for, you know, how CO2 flooding works, but I think the way that you just broke it down in its core, you, you attacked all the primary, uh, not issues with it, but the primary points and topics that needed to be addressed. So that was, yeah, that was great. Thank you for doing that, Mike. Yeah, sure. Oh, anyway, I know Troy, I see your brain. I, I see your, 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 the wheels turning. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, you see his brain smoking there for a second. Yeah. <laughs> that Joe, might happen in a second. If we keep watching. <laughs> tension. Uh, the fluid in the reservoir. I heard something recently about how when you, decrease the interfacial tension it destroys microbe microbial bacteria in the system it just kills them they don't like that they like high interfacial tension microbes will, will just cruise around marcells are happy or whatever that takes for that microbe system to work when you decrease that the microbes seem to, to die which seems like a cool thing 
Yeah, and I suspect, I don't know, I haven't looked at this. This is the first time I've really thought about it just here live. And and probably Steve Melzer is the real one you should talk to about that question. But uh, I would imagine that it's a lot easier for them to cruise along that inner surface uh, break in between the water and oil. And when you break that down, uh, they're floating out and it's a lot harder for them to get around to access uh the, the things that they need from each system. Right. So that's my first guess. Having just thinking about this live as we, we talk here yeah. and having no experience and no background. <laughs> it is awesome to think about yeah. biology and rocks and the same thing. That's yeah. yeah, it is. So, yeah. so Mike, not to backtrack a lot, but so you're in this transition with Kinder Morgan buying out the sack rock field and now you're converting it to a more optimal CO2 flooding system. So continue with your story. So what, what happens next? What, what, what's going on? Okay. So, uh, we spent, uh, six years, or at least I spent six years there at Kinder Morgan. And, uh, we took this Saprock unit from, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, three or 4,000 barrels of oil a day, uh, to eventually peak out at over 36,000 barrels of oil per day. Uh, so that's pretty good success. Woo! And, uh, I think even still today, uh, they're over 25,000 barrels a day. So this was literally a field that was on its last leg. And uh, here's another little trivia for you that I love about uh, the Sackrock unit. It is not only the first commercial CO2 flood in the United States, it's also the first anthropogenic CO2 or CCUS project. Uh, wow. Carbon capture use and storage. Wow. So they started in 1972 with, I mean, they started the commercial aspects, not the pilots, not the testing. Mm -hmm. The actual commercial flood started in 1972 with CO2 that they brought up from uh, gas plants down in the Valverde Basin uh, and stripped the CO2 off of those gas plants, which had a high CO2 cut, and they were previously venting the CO2. And they took that CO2, shipped it up uh, the line to uh, a brand new line back then, of course, to Sakharov unit and started uh, the CO2 flood revolution, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. back in 72. What the heck? Today's equivalent in uh, production uh, into money, that's 1.3 million a day that operations make it. Yeah. Gross. 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 Yeah. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of things uh, associated with that. A lot of expenses on the CO2. Oh yeah. Side purchasing the CO2, electricity to mm. pump the CO2, electricity to recycle the CO2, electricity mm. to reinject the CO2. So it it's uh it's not like they're clearing that much. It takes a lot yeah. to get that. Absolutely. Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, like you were saying though, but I'm sure through time, like when you guys stepped in, you know, they're optimizing this field, reducing those, you know, that LOE and, you know, trying to make that margin as big as possible, but still that's, yeah, that the, like you're saying, the amount that goes into, goes behind the scenes into a successful CO2 flood is, you know, it, things can stack up very quickly. Yes. Yeah. You can't just uh, say, Hey, I want to inject some CO2 and get a big success here. I'm going to, pick a well and just start shoving some CO2 down it. Uh, it definitely does not work like that. Uh, there's a whole team that works on uh, the reservoir side and on the production side 
Uh, and that's just after the CO2 gets to the field. There's a whole team that deals with the infrastructure and the facilities. And uh, the key to it is having everybody work together. A CO2 flood is the ultimate and an integrated team that has to put all the pieces together and work as a cohesive unit. Mm. And that's really the big difference that uh, in operations that take you from a water flood uh, where you can get by with a little bit because the water is a lot cheaper. And if you bypass a little bit of pay here and there, or if you don't optimize the pattern, uh, that's not as big of an impact. But when you're using this expensive fluid and uh, the uh, intense uh, efforts that it takes to get that there, you have to take it to that level. Yeah. So integration, I think, is uh, discipline integration uh, mm. is a uh, a key component of all that. Who's the biggest CO2 user, manipulator, injector in the Permian Basin right now? Is it still Kinderman? Kinderman? Um, possibly could be Oxy right now because they uh, have a variety of fields and they've got that big uh, century plant that's down in, I think, Terrell County, maybe Pecos County, somewhere down there. Is that something they took over from Whiting? Uh, from Sandridge, actually. Getting yeah, back. So, yeah, yeah, and they were and they were partners with Sandridge right from the beginning. Whoa. Okay, so, so that's the next place you you end up, right? From Kinder Morgan to Sandridge. Right. Yeah. Originally, it was called uh, Petrosource Energy, and uh, a guy that was the uh, manager over there is another former Texaco engineer friend of mine who was in the CO2 group with me. Uh, his name's Greg West. So uh, Greg called me up and they were looking to expand. They had a couple CO2 floods already, uh, one in progress and one in planning. And uh, they took over the Wellman unit, which uh, since you've been out here in the Permian Basin, you're aware of the Horseshoe Atoll. So mm -hmm. Snack Rock is on the eastern side of the Horseshoe Atoll. And you take it all the way down and around and on the west end is the Wellman unit. And it's the youngest piece of the Horseshoe Atoll. It's actually uh, Wolf Campion in age. So Sac Rock is uh, Cisco and Canyon in age. So oldest on the east and then youngest on the west. That's the last gasp of the Horseshoe Atoll as it's getting uh, buried. That's uh, end Pennsylvanian to, Wolf, uh, to Permian time that uh, Atoll's coming together? Yes. Oh, that's yeah, a long time. It was there uh, for a really major feature of the Permian Basin. Right. Definitely. So, yeah. Anyway, so Greg is working with Petrosource, who's got this project, and uh, he invited me to come over there with them. Uh, and it's a different sort of flood. Uh, what we're talking about at the Sac Rock unit is uh, high pressure, uh, a lateral flood, and Wellman units have been producing uh, almost as long as CO2, uh, as long as the Sacroc unit had been, but uh, it's not had as much uh, water flooding and certainly hasn't had all that CO2 flooding, uh, but uh, it started uh, in the 90s, I think, and it was a very low pressure situation. And as these things are growing very rapidly up, this area tend to have a lot of vertical perm in it. So what they were doing here is what's called a vertical 
CO2 flood or a gravity assisted CO2 flood. So you're injecting non-miscible CO2. So it's in a mm-hmm. gas phase mm-hmm. and you, it all of course is less buoyant than, or more buoyant than the water. So it's rising to the top and then uh, pushing down as it goes, as opposed to a CO2 flood in a miscible situation where you're sweeping across from a producer to an injector. So here you're sweeping down from the top to the bottom instead. So that was a pretty fascinating process. Yeah. A little different way to do things and a different way to look at it and monitor it. The reservoir was connected vertically, not a horizontally laid down tilting or anything like that. It, was- uh, it, it was laid down horizontal. It has some horizontal layers in it, but it's a lot steeper. And by horizontal, I don't mean zero to half degree. I'm talking about a degree or maybe two over a relatively small area, but that adds up. And then you have, uh, you know, fracturing and, and some, a lot of uh, poor space development that allows for connection between layers. So wow. it may not be, it's not exactly like a tank that's homogenous isotropic media with a, a funnel shaped top on it, uh, <laughs> inverted funnel that is, it's not exactly like that, but you get the layers so that it's sweeping back and forth and is on average more top down than it is left, right, or north, south, or east, west. That is cool. Yeah, and it was a pretty amazing project also. So, Lucrative as the uh, 30,000 30, barrels a day one, or is this a smaller volume? It's a, it's a smaller in volume scale. We're talking a, a few thousand barrels, three to maybe 5,000 barrel day mm-hmm. sort of uh, range there. But it's also a smaller footprint. Right. Yeah. It's maybe total of two square miles. It does. It's not sitting in the middle of a, a <laughs> section. Of course, uh, like all your USGS topographic maps, your area of interest is right at the intersection of the four maps. Uh, same thing with this. It wasn't in one section. It was scattered over several sections. But uh, net area is probably two and a half, maybe three at most square miles. Wow. Interesting. Experience with CO2, absolutely fascinating. We're now getting into the whiting part of your career, and then we'll transition into the drill down segment of the PBE podcast with you. Please tell us what happened at whiting, major epiphanies along the way, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Okay. Well, at whiting, I uh, moved to something that I had never done before, which was a, a sandstone project. Uh, back at that time, there was a lot of question about. Uh, what's better? Could you, should you have a CO2 project in a sandstone or should they only be in carbonates? Uh, there's been a lot of evidence that sands would work fine, but it still was seemed to be a question in everybody's mind. Uh, and for me, it was a, a little bit uh, change of pace. So had some learning to do uh, and think about things differently. Uh, this uh, project that we moved to was an incised valley and had a sand channel feel inside there. And then the valley edges were all shale. So that made the seal on the sides and then some anhydrite layers and internal uh, stratification made the seals on the top uh, and dealing with just a, a different system here, but uh, it works fine. The, the pH balances are what people worry about with sandstones because you might have a little bit of a calcite cement but the CO2 is acidic. So are you gonna dissolve everything out, ruin your well bores, um, 
destroy your mm. formation, collapse the whole earth. Uh, <laughs> uh, what's this going to work out like? And, and that actually had been an issue that people worried about in carbonates too, but carbonates have uh, such a large amount, at least in the limestones, they have such a large amount of uh, free calcium available that the, the pH is fairly well balanced and uh, you don't get uh, widespread total dissolution of everything that touches CO2. So, so concerns are valid, but maybe not at the scale that people were worrying about back in the say 80s and 90s. Yeah. Before we get a lot of evidence to to see what exactly uh, are those reactions going to be? Wow, you're talking about dissolving the rock with the CO2 flood and creating yes. more porosity and permeability, almost right. uncontrollably if it does react violently. Right. <laughs> Who knows, right? Yeah, that's the, that's a concern. You know, you, yeah. you think about uh, the experiment uh, that your parents probably would never let you do of uh, punching a tiny hole in a Coke can and letting it drip on your mom's sidewalk for uh, four, four days and see what kind of hole you get at the bottom of it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the kind of thing that people were worried about. Wow. Wow. Applying fifth grade science to the nth degree. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, it all comes full circle. Yeah, it all comes full circle. <laughs> that was a fascinating topic. I mean, that's one that you could almost, I mean, you could just make a webinar about just that idea. Oh, yeah. The permeability based on the pH of the brine that's in the system and the CO2 as gas are dissolved and, and now acting more like a fluid. How is it reacting with the, with the carbonate that's there? Are you precipitating other things out? I mean, that is such a cool idea. Yeah, and there's a lot of evidence that that does happen. Uh, for example, you see uh, injectivity decreases when you've been injecting CO2 for a while and then you switch to water. Uh, so there is a chemical reaction that is going on uh, for sure. It's just what exactly is that? How significant is it? Does it reappear itself over time with, uh, are you balancing out the dissolution yeah. of precipitation uh, or is this worse and worse every time? And which way is it going? Are you developing a cavern out there somewhere? We do know that uh, breakthrough is a real thing. And that's when your CO2 flood front doesn't actually move uh, continuously across. Instead, it moves in fingers and whichever finger reaches the wellbore first on the opposite end uh, gets all the pressure and everything else is lost. And yeah. that becomes a focal point. So a self-focusing mechanism. So back, uh, to my, back to my thesis work. Wow, the modeling in that must be amazing. Yeah. Yeah cavern dissolution things, which uh, I guess that kind of did set me up for this, I guess, I suppose, <laughs> uh, at least in thinking about those kind of things. Right. Yeah. Years, uh, what can you do about it? Should you stop it before? Should you let it go on? But, but the key point is you're sweeping all this oil with all the CO2. And once you get a single zone that breaks through, you lose all the energy to all the rest of the systems yeah. because that's a relative perm change. It's much easier for the CO2 to flow no, that yeah. way. So everything that was out here is abandoned, and that CO2 pressure front comes back, collapses into that breakthrough zone, the thief zone, as we call it. And mm. then everything that you've worked so hard to sweep towards your well, your producing well over here, is now abandoned in the reservoir and lost. So 
that's where the are reservoir there, management part comes in. I was going to say, is that more, does that dive more into the geology per se, where you understand, okay, this is the quote unquote depositional environment of this system, right? We have one of these, you know, we're, we're pumping into a grainstone, like backstepping shoal. Uh, so we can anticipate this is the orientation that it's going to sweep, but we can, we know as we're getting towards, you know, the fringe of this grainstone shoal, things are going to start to pinch out. And, and like, is that an another way that you're planning these different CO2 floods is like, as far as understanding the total geology of the, of the, uh, of the study area? Yeah. In an ideal situation. Yes. That's what you would be doing. Uh, in, um, practical terms, you usually, are stuck with what was there before because oh, yeah. these things. Start I mean, there, there's, yeah, yeah. You're yeah, I, I, like, yeah. being in tertiary recovery. Obviously, yeah, yeah. you're you're phase, yeah, you're on the third phase, and you're yeah, you're trying on trying to make the best of what you got. Right now, are there some things you can do about it? Yes, there are. Mm -hmm. Can you switch this pattern arrangement up? Uh, can you switch things over a half a pattern? So, what were injectors become producers, and what were producers become injectors? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, you can work with that system and keep these potential problems in mind to uh, direct how you want to approach it. Yeah. And if you expand it to a new area, of course, drill new wells, then you're free to take your ideas and try to make the most of them. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, interesting. I mean, with modern day development is something, I mean, to be kept in mind, right? If this is a, an area that, all right, we're we're only going to be able to produce that, you know, that primary oil for X amount of time, but we know this is a very good, you know, tertiary recovery zone. Cause I know there's some companies that do that. They'll just go straight into tertiary. They'll drill a pattern out and then from there they'll flood. But uh, yeah, that's just, I don't know. Brain spinning, brain spinning. Got a bunch of ideas going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, things are the way they are for a reason. And that usually is because, uh, uh, what do we have here and how are we going to produce it today? And if this thing is not producing um, next week, I'm really concerned about it. If it's not mm. producing two years after I retire, uh, I'm not going to spend as much effort in designing for that eventuality, yeah. <laughs> which may not even happen. So yeah. why am I going to put all that effort into it? But <laughs> if you're going to start, uh, from scratch with this end in mind, you would set up your uh, whole entire field a little bit differently. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, Kinder Morgan is a good example of somebody who has taken that. They've done something that's a, a little bit different, which is go into a zone that does not have a main pay zone. So there's no free flowing uh, primary productive target and there's not really a secondary target. So they've gone into something which is called a greenfield when you do this uh, approach. And they drill this up with the one and only goal being tertiary recovery without ever going through phase one or phase two. Yeah. So set it up exactly like they want it. And, and they've actually done that. Uh, in, I think that's Andrews. No, that's Gaines County. Okay. Gaines County, they're, they're hitting this greenfield idea. Say again, what about the Greenfield idea? It's happening in Gaines County, which is ROC. I mean, Gaines County's a yes. prolific part of the Permian Basin for sure. Yeah, and mm -hmm. that big ROZ is exactly what they were targeting there. So you're right on track with that. Man. So thumbs up, Troy. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Mr. Reigns, your your young professional into your solid career. Carbon has been a big part of this, CO2 specifically, right? And now we're talking about carbon use, carbon storage. It's a kind of a new thing. Young professionals, we had Dylan Morton on the show. He was like, I'm kind of getting interested. He's a grad student at OSU, kind of getting interested in carbon sequestration. I have all kinds of interesting thoughts on it. Of course, no shock there, I guess. I want to hear, though, and we can transition to the drill down unless you want to say anything else about your career uh, and, and the societies. We didn't really touch too much on that. You were developing yourself professionally in the AAPG and locally in the societies this whole time, uh, which is fascinating to talk about. So we can talk more about that. But the drill down, the use of carbon, the carbon CO2 being used for production increase. Restoring, getting it out of the atmosphere, helping us to better understand carbon and its place in the natural process of the planet. There's a lot of things happening here. Where do you guys want to go with this? You want to stay in conception or we transition to the drill? Skip, what do you think? It's on you, Mike. I was going to say, I, I mean, I really want to talk a little bit about the societies. I still want to do that because, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that is a, a very crucial part as far as my... Yeah, it's as far as yeah the whole yeah. geological well, we community. Spend so. some time on that now. If you want to do that yeah. now. Yep, and then we'll transit. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, like you said, that I did for you, I had somebody do for me when I first got to Midland. Uh, somebody started hauling me around to all these uh, WTGS and PBS SEPM talks. Uh, even I didn't get as many in the summer, but I think I caught one maybe at the beginning and then there was a summer break and then maybe one at the end. So that's where I first saw uh, that these things existed. Didn't really understand the difference between the societies or how the structures were between them. I mean, I was a student member of AAPG, but uh, we got together a couple of times, had some pizza, but we didn't really talk about what are these organizations? How are they related or how are they not related? How do they work? What do they provide for us? I just knew if you want to uh, get a paper on some topic, uh, these different organizations are places for you to go. They sponsor people to do research. And if you do your research, you might be able to present a poster or even write a paper for them. And that was pretty much the extent of my understanding of what the societies were and what they did. Wow. So my first introduction then is starting to go to these monthly luncheons and maybe I've been here perhaps a year or so uh, when somebody approached me at one of the meetings and said, Hey, you're new and out of college probably has some, some good ideas about uh, uh, talks that we should see or speakers that we should hear. Uh, and I said, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's a lot of responsibility. Let me start a little bit lower. And so I agreed to do the, the program part of the luncheon, which is making sure that the AV equipment was there, that things were loaded up, that microphones were available and uh, screens were there. And so I handled that part at first. And then that of course transitioned into, oh, why don't you help us find some speakers? You, you know people. You've heard talks, you've uh, read papers, uh, bring somebody in, uh, which was very daunting to me. Uh, that was actually uh, the hardest uh, break-in thing I've ever done is to try to, to <laughs> get past my uh, discomfort level and get into that asking somebody to present and knowing 
what I should be looking for to, to even ask somebody to come talk to us? What, what are people going to be interested in? How do I know what Troy wants to hear? What do I know what Skip wants to hear? Right. Um, but I, I agreed to do it and it worked out pretty good. There was, you know, the previous guy had some ideas, things that uh, didn't work out timing wise with somebody he had. So here's one or two names for that. And uh, I never did get around to talking to so-and-so. So here's another one or two names. So now you only have to come up with five or six names. And so that's how I got started in the societies. And then that led to, of course, uh, hey, you did an okay job with that. Why don't you uh, come over here and help us with this and help us with that? So then I started becoming aware of the differences between WTGS, West Texas Geological Society, and PBS SEPM, which at that time was still Permian Basin section of the Society of Economic and Paleontologists and Mineralogists, and now, of course, known as the Society for Sedimentary Geology. But we keep the original initials. Oh, I didn't know there was a change there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, So that was an interesting change. And I spent some time uh, learning about both boards and eventually being on both boards, not at the same time. Uh, And back then, uh, we had an agreement with WTGS where we shared office space and where we shared um, an executive director. Mm -hmm. Now, Permian Basin section is uh, all separate and completely volunteer. So we don't have an executive director. So that's why when people call the number, they have to leave a voice message because it's all a volunteer. There's nobody here uh, during the day. We all do this after hours and on our own time. Right. So that's the local society level. Uh, And then of course, if you know any of the history of AAPG and how it came about, Uh, There used to be a lot of individual geological societies that were local and uh, nobody really did anything together. So back in the early 1900s, people started saying, you know, we've got some common things uh, around here, around the the nation, and we've got some uh, regional trends that uh, we should all collaborate on and learn from each other with. So by 1917, the AAPG, American Association of Petroleum Geologists, had been established from those original local societies. And then as more and more societies grew with the oil fields expanding and new discoveries being made, then you got uh, the uh, affiliated society. So that's maybe you had some AAPG members already who moved to that location and joined this local society. And at some point, they felt like they were ready to communicate and uh, be involved with the nation as a whole. So they uh, became affiliated societies with the AAPG. And that's how we got to be um, where we are now with Mm. the the societies having representation uh, inside of AAPG through the House of Delegates. And Troy, I know you're an alternate House of Delegate member, so you're a little bit familiar with that, but I don't know that everyone is. Right. No, it's completely new. It feels like it's new every time I dive into it every year, too. I report. Yeah, yeah. yeah it seems like it. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, there's also, okay, there's the national level and there's our, there's our local level, but there needs to be something in between also. So AAPG sponsored in cooperation with the affiliated societies the sections originally. Now we have Mm -hmm. sections, which are regional um, society collaborations, if you want to call it that. 
and we have regions, which are the same thing, but international instead of uh, inside the US. So uh, Southwest section of AAPG is uh, the one that I was involved with, of course. So mm -hmm. uh, to be a member of Southwest section, you either are a member of one of the local societies that are affiliated with the section, or you're a member of AAPG who, whose address is inside those boundaries. So uh, it's a little less formal, but a separate, uh, separate corporation from AAPG or from affiliated societies, but linked to both and cooperative with both. So I was uh, completely unaware of all of these differences when I joined Midland. Well, you just doctored us up. I mean, I've learned yeah. a ton on the history and the, I mean, just a revolutionary concept of the AAPG saying, hold on regionally across the whole country we got some similarities here we should probably get together and, and try to integrate here and, and yeah. maybe discoveries and it certainly did mm -hmm. yeah instead and of stepping on each other's toes let's let's work together and let's get through this right and then we don't want to be copying the same work if this one society is doing research on one thing and this other society is doing the same exact research then we're kind of wasting resources in a sense right, right. so let's come to Exactly. Yeah. Let's come together and make this thing happen. Mm -hmm. So, and then now you have shared resources. You have a, a, a bigger pool uh, that everyone is helping a little bit with all the things. So from the money and the research and the uh, publication side, uh, we are all integrating these things now instead of uh, everybody doing their own little thing. Yeah. Conflicting or not conflicting. Uh, and, and you don't know which until you get to the end. <laughs> how uh, how do you see the APG doing after the COVID-19? Uh, would you call it a recession? We'll just call it post-COVID-19. Uh, how, how's the APG doing, in your opinion? How are the local societies in Midland doing? I know Midland is, is blowing and going. It's still burning, uh, from what I could tell and what I could hear. Um, but how are the societies doing? How are you guys transitioning with this? Um, digital format and everything else after COVID. Yeah, let, let's start with the uh, local societies because that's the ones that I know most about. Then I can do some arm waving for the rest of this stuff later. Uh, but uh, I think the key thing that's gonna come out of this on the other side and which we're already uh, doing at Permian Basin section of SEPM is um, having a dual format for the luncheons. So, um, what we have gone to is uh, we were completely closed in December and in April and May. In April and May, we transitioned those speakers, uh, Dr. Rebecca Dodge and uh, um, I forgot her last name, uh, Sarah. Uh, anyway, our two speakers, we transitioned them to the summer and picked it up then to give us uh, that cushion in April and May. And we have now uh, starting in, I guess, September, a dual format. So Troy, you really wanted to see our, uh, our April talk, but you're not gonna be here. You're off in Tucson at the Gym and Mineral Show, even though it doesn't start until Wednesday, I'm gonna, you're gonna be there on Tuesday. <laughs> oh, all of a sudden now we have this online option, which you can join us from over there and it's a $5 cost as opposed to, hey, uh, last minute, I think I can get in here. Uh, I wasn't planning to attend the meeting, but now I'm going to go over here and eat lunch with you guys. And it's the 30 buck option. Mm -hmm. So 
just for five bucks, you can come join here. And, and that uh, I think is gonna stick with us. We're gonna have a virtual platform option and a uh, live in-person option too. And that brought up uh, some other things that we've been wrestling with already. Uh, with the wider population, you get a lot more things that you have to worry about as far as uh, uh, food allergies, uh, you know, peanut shellfish, uh, whatever other things, vegan, vegetarian. And it's hard, especially when you're dealing with a relatively small audience. Maybe it's okay when you have 300 people, but when you have a smaller audience, it's hard to get all these things balanced. And some caterers do a better job of making sure that vegetarian items never touch other items. So uh, one solution that we came up with is, okay, let's, let's split this up and let people who don't want to uh, worry about those things and would probably bring their own lunch anyway, let's let them have credit for that. Let's don't charge them the price to get the meal. So uh, if you want to attend and bring your own lunch, let's make a new price for that. Let's set it the same as being online because uh, yes, we're still having to pay for the venue, but uh, we're not paying for the catering. So let's just give them a break and, and cause, cause it to, to be the same as, as if you were there virtually. And uh, what about students? We're always trying to support students, to encourage students, to bring students in, to reach students which is part of why this online option was attractive to us. But we've got local students. We've got uh, Sol Ross, Midland College and University of Texas, Permian Basin. So all of those might have kids who would be able to come uh, at different times. Let's give them a price break too. So we've gone to $5 for bring your own lunch or $5 for joining us online, $10 for students. And then it's the regular $25 for uh regular members or regular street people, if you want to call it that, <laughs> if you come in and eat with us and bring a reservation. It does cost us more if we have to get extra food. So we add $5 if you if you walk in. You're still welcome. We just want to set it up like that. Yeah. So I think this new structure, at least for us, is going to be something that we're going to take forward with us in the future and the online option. And uh, we try to get permissions from the speakers to let us record their talks and if if they're able to do that, then we can keep those um, on the website and you can mm -hmm. purchase those later and you can attend luncheon with us after the fact. Right on. And how has that been? How's the response been since you guys have been kind of compiling this new way of doing it? A lot more students, a lot more young professionals, a lot more attendance overall? Um, it's still lower than it was. And I think uh, that is partially a COVID response and partially uh, employment level response. But uh, our online is starting to pick up. At first, we only had maybe five or six the first couple of times we did it. And now it's not uncommon to have 15 people join online. And our in-person numbers are also coming up. So that's why I'm thinking it's a combination of yeah. COVID and, uh, and the unemployment situation. That's interesting. It's a, it's the commitment. It's the commitment to the change and, and making those rules or making those, uh, you know, plans and then just doing it. And then all of a sudden it works, um, you know, setting up the infrastructure and trying to do it in such a way uh, to honor all the needs of all of your customers, if you want to call them that, your constituents. Uh, wow. and keep that. Oh, go ahead. Everyone. Oh, just, just to keep it as equitable as you can make it. Yeah. So yeah. We still have expenses. 
and we're a nonprofit. We're not trying to make money off this, but we're also trying not to go broke. So uh, keeping these things in mind and trying to be as fair as you can with your membership. Oh, yeah. Oh, one thing that's interesting is the money goes towards uh, supporting someone for a paper or a poster or something like that, something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, that's really important, really, really important. That's why the, the dues are so important. That's why we do what we do in financial support as professionals to the society. It's, we got to feed this, 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 uh, this society that has the curiosity of creating something new and spending their extra time reading something differently, thinking about it differently and chasing down that rabbit hole and finding something of value that hasn't been said before. We have to feed those platforms and that's why we exist. That's why we're still members of these things and we pay these, these, these dues. So fascinating. Thank you for taking such a time, yeah. so much effort in your career as a professional, developing, but also giving back at the same time. Thank you, seriously. Yeah, you're welcome. It's uh, it's rewarding on both sides. You can't just take all the time. You gotta give a little to, and then your taking is more rewarding and means more to you. Hmm. So the AAPG event this year is a dual threat event. SCG, AAPG coming together in Denver. Last time that happened was like 60 years ago or something. I don't know what I've read for the fun facts on that, but that's really cool. Geophysicists, geologists coming together. Let's create some value. How do you think this is all going to play out? Is it going to be a hybrid, virtual, in-person, all in-person? What do you know about this event? Uh, My impression is this is going to be a hybrid event also. Uh, And then, of course, with the hybrid events, you have to worry about time zones. When we did the AAPG CCUS conference earlier this month, or wait, yeah, that was last month, end of last month, uh, we had that dual format also, but uh, we're dealing with people in uh, New Zealand uh, and people on the West Coast, people on the East Coast, people in England. So trying to get these times so that it's not completely horrible for everyone uh, is a difficult thing. But I think that that's going to be a way forward for at least a few years here. It reduces the travel cost, uh, the, ex- the expense of uh, being wherever you're going to be. Uh, if you have this year restrictions on, hey, you have to be here for two weeks in quarantine before we're going to let you uh, out into the streets of Denver or whatever situation like that might be, it eliminates all those things. And it makes the time commitment for the people attending uh, smaller also because you don't have to take off a day or two ahead of time. You just uh, take your time during the actual conference. And when it's over, you can go back to work or you can get back home or whatever it is that you need to do. Yeah. So I think that that's going to be a model, at least for a little while, that will be uh, continuing. Think uh, in person. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Troy. Well, the in-person part of the APG SEG combined event in October of this year is going to be held at a big convention center in downtown Denver. Where's the setting? I have not heard where uh, the location is, but my expectation is it's going to be the same convention center where we would have had it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I just don't, I don't know that for sure, but it'd be something along the lines of something that we're used to. Wow. We got to get there, Skippo. I don't know how yeah. we're off, but we got to get there, man. We got to get back live when people are getting back live. I'll wear my mask. I want to be polite. I have no problem with that. That's fine. I want to see you. I want to feel you. You know what I mean? If, I miss uh, those convention floors, man. I miss them. 
I miss talking to people. I miss, I miss, you know, the ideas going around. I miss that energy. I miss that buzz. There, there's something about it. I mean, the online thing, very, very convenient. But I mean, as we all know, being at the convention is there's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it. Yeah, it's the interactions that you didn't anticipate and couldn't plan for ahead of time that mm-hmm. end up having the most value to you at the end, at least in my mm-hmm. experience. Yes, agreed. You are tuned in to the PBE podcast where we're taking new information, applying it to new real world applications to make discoveries. We got to stop and take a minute and thank our sponsors, BRT Energy Advisors, Better Reservoir Technologies, results without the BS. We've had Alan on our show and I can tell you from experience, he definitely has seen seismic from around the world, including of course, right here in the Permian Basin. If you are in the EMP business and you want to use seismic data to increase the value of your asset, or if you want to drill safer wells at lower costs using seismic, then you got to get a hold of Alan Bertain and work with his team at BRT Energy Advisors. If you check out our podcast from episode 70, you'll see that not only he understands geophysics, business, and people, but he also explains complicated subjects in a clear and simple way. Visit them at www.brtenergy.com forward slash PBE. We are now officially Going into the drill down segment with Mr. Mike Rains about carbon use, carbon storage, sequestration, the geology, the business. Sir, please take it away. Uh, thanks, guys. So let me uh, first uh, acknowledge that John Caldy is the person who put down uh, this description here, this uh, nice little graphic. So I'm going to talk about where CO2 comes from in our modern industrial society. I'm not talking about natural CO2 at this point, just uh, what's anthropogenic or man-made CO2 and what can we do with it? What's, what's the idea? What's the business model behind it? So let's start over here on the left side. We've got uh, a gas processing plant here, power station here. Uh, cement plant here. This power station can be fueled by coal or by gas. Either way, it produces a CO2 stream, uh, and that CO2 stream can be captured and separated from the other things, and then it can be compressed and transported out into the, the oil field in this case. It doesn't necessarily have to be an oil field. It could be an area that doesn't have any oil but has some underground storage potential. In the case of the oil field, you have uh, producers and you have injectors. So the CO2 is injected into the reservoir and then it sweeps the CO2 as we've talked about briefly in the previous segment. And that, uh, that CO2 and oil combine together and then they can be produced up the, the hole in the producers. Then you can re-inject this whole thing and start the whole system all over again. As we uh, mentioned with the greenfield idea, there's usually a main pay in an oil zone, but in a greenfield, this may not exist. It may just be all water in the transition zone. So in that case, all of this oil would be something that would have been left behind before. So you're getting uh, energy out of uh, what was an unavailable resource before. So that means you don't have to uh, go drill new wells in a new area. You don't have to have extra pipelines. You can use existing infrastructure and reduce your footprint by accessing all this oil 
that would have been unavailable otherwise. Mm. So when we talk about uh, CCS or carbon capture and storage, the difference in that is that none of this oil is available in a main pay or in a transition zone. This is just a porous media that has uh, some sort of a non-fresh water in it, something that's not potable. And you can basically do something similar, which is you inject the CO2 here and it fills up the structure or stratigraphic trap that you've got. And then you can leave that stored in the ground um, until uh, you need it for some other purpose, some other time in uh, future history. So going from the CO2 compression unit and the, air, the solid blue line going off to the right of the screen has 100% CO2 or 99.9% CO2 and something else. That goes down into the reservoir. How much actually comes back from production? How much is being, is it 100% sequestered and being trapped in the reservoir or is it 40%? How much stays in reservoir in this, in this specifically the enhanced oil recovery method that you're showing here, injecting CO2, how much comes back? Okay, so you, uh, some estimates are that uh, you end up saving 95% uh, of that in the ground, and that may even be a, a low number. Of course, that's assuming that you reuse this CO2, which everyone does. It's uh, too expensive of a fluid to waste. So everyone's very conscious of keeping that CO2 available and putting it back into the ground. Uh, you have some things uh, where you might have uh, equipment failures or something where you lose a little bit of CO2. Uh, and you have some of that CO2 is in transition at all, the, all times. But uh, uh, some people who've studied this, and I have not studied this myself, I'm just uh, referencing other people. Uh, you can expect 95 to 97% of it to be in the ground at any one time. That's and when you're done with this thing, uh, of course, you can choose to seal those wells off and everything that's there will stay in the ground. Interesting. We had Alan Bertain on the show and he talked about how some cases you inject it in and they thought they had good seal integrity, meaning there's going to be a complete cap. There's no cracks, there's no leaks. And later to find out the CO2 is seeping up these chimneys and this structure complexity, which they didn't know was there when they started the project. So it's an right. uh, interesting, interesting uh, anomaly in there. Yeah. And that is uh, where your site characterization comes into play. And that is uh, one thing that helps reduce your risk is if you have an area with known storage capabilities ahead of time. So in other words, if you have a, a dome here that uh, is solid uh, and hasn't leaked uh, over time, as long as you're staying in this same area, you have a higher confidence. As you get further and further away from your known points, of course, uh, and where you have uh, evidence that gases of this size or smaller have been contained in the past, uh, then of course your in your risk increases. What part of the country has this technology developed the most in, in, in just our country? Where do we find capture separation plants? Where are mm -hmm. the compression units? Where's this happening right now in, in the front lines of this technology in our country? 
uh, in the United States, it's a the what what I call Midwest, say uh, Nebraska, Iowa, uh, down to the Gulf Coast, uh, not too far east of the Permian Basin, and not or not too far east from the Gulf Coast. I mean, and not too far west from the Permian Basin. Just uh, put a square or a rectangle in there, and that's the area where most is being developed. Whoa. I think. Uh, California may have a few people working on it, but they don't have any uh, currently operating enhanced oil recovery CO2 floods. So I'm going to put Permian Basin and Gulf Coast above them and uh, uh, both of us above uh, Nebraska, uh, Iowa, Kansas sort of thing. But uh, wow. Kansas is kind of the heart of uh, a lot of the research that's going on right now. And uh, tying into them uh, are the states surrounding them. Uh, it's happening in the Texas Panhandle. It's happening in the Gulf Coast. And of course, you already know about all the things going on here in EOR in the Permian Basin. Mm -hmm. So, some kind of the so for the future of this carbon sequestration, because this is a very hot topic nowadays. Is there any, or do you know of any potential policy or anything down the road in which would make the cost of CO2 flooding or just pumping CO2 within to the, into the subsurface cheaper? Because like you said, you know, every little bit of it that you get out, you want to capture again because it's expensive. Right. Yeah. Uh, the things that are coming down the line that I'm seeing a lot of people talk about so far are mainly anthropogenic related uh, CO2 sources. So nothing related to uh, the big gas fields like Bravo Dome, Akelmo Dome. Yeah. And Gomez Field. None of none of that is uh, going to be impacted by that. What the uh, man-made CO2 sources have uh, coming down the line is something called uh, Q45, and in California they're doing something called the Low Carbon uh, Fuel Standard Credit. So that is a tax break, either uh, directly or uh, next year when you file your taxes on. Uh, CO2 that you've taken out of the system and have sent to be stored or used as long as it is monitored and uh, uh, tracked so that you can account for the volumes. And those things are giving you between uh, 35 and $50 a barrel on the federal level, or excuse me, 35 to $50 a ton on the federal level. Uh, and the California low fuel standards, uh, I don't remember what that exact dollar figure is, but it's a little bit higher. And um, there's a difference in how the IRS uh, system works versus how the California system works. So uh, people are working on getting these things to be uh, more easy to use and uh, easy to share so that you don't have to have somebody taking a tax credit who also is uh, handling the CO2 and storing the CO2, which right now, the, how that transition works is, is a little bit uh, complex, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, you can't just have, uh, right now, what, what the idea is and what people are pushing for is to get Congress to authorize uh, a direct payment for the uh, tax credits so that the person who gets the tax credit, uh, can uh, share that tax credit with other people, get a refund on their tax credit if they uh, have paid in more than that tax credit 
is worth as opposed to uh, the current system, which you have to make enough tax liability to take that off the tax liability. You, you can't just use that money as a rebate directly like, like you and I would with our personal income tax returns. Mm -hmm. You pay in more than you need, you get some money back in the form of a check. Uh, so that's kind of what people are hoping to get to. But yeah. That's not where it is right now. And I think that would be the next step to make all these relationships uh, smoother with yeah. who has the CO2 generation, who's capturing it, who's transporting it, who's yeah. storing it, and who's monitoring it. I was going to say, so the as, as, the, as the infrastructure for this whole system improves, that's probably when we'll start to see more policy come down the line for it. I, I hope so, yes. Okay. <laughs> that would make sense. I mean, the government's probably best role in this is to better understand the anthropogenic, the man-made. We know that's a byproduct of what we do and we're not going to stop what we do. So let's focus on that. Let's get yeah. that back into the ground or so, do something efficient with that. Uh, I could see that being a logical way to go for, for the government to get involved. That's it. Stop it there. There's no more about you know saving the planet or anything like that. Government's not involved in that. Let's move on. Uh, so I like that creating policy and creating a successful story about helping operators and helping companies that are figuring out how to solve this problem right here, whether it's going to storage or going to use, obviously going to use is what I find the most, uh, I don't know, interesting, I would say, because the byproduct of what we do, not only are we getting paid to focus on this project and it could be a career, 30 years, 40 years, billions of dollars into create the taking that man-made co2 putting it to use that has a positive byproduct and it's safe so one thing i was thinking about with carbon sequestration is uh recently i discovered through conversations with the magnetic research institute and stan keith putting this together the planet loses hydrogen and helium that's the only mass we actually you lose through time as we're swirling through space, helium hydrogen is the only two things that we're kind of losing constantly. So is it possible to find a good geologic environment where we can pump CO2 in and the byproduct is allowing CO2 to be converted in and release hydrogen and helium maybe through the cracks and through these chimneys and these bad seals that some people have found? Is there a way to convert that into something that it looks like the planet might actually need and use maybe? Yeah, that's a interesting idea anyway. Yeah, of course you can uh, make hydrogen. Uh, I'm not aware of anybody commercially available to make helium, but uh, you can take a methane stream, for example, and create hydrogen and you get uh, water and CO2 on the other end of it. So uh, from that standpoint, I guess uh, that's something that's possible. Uh, cool. Or as I know, helium is just a radioactive decay product. I don't think anybody's found a way to yeah. effectively make it. Yeah, unlock it in some way. And then CO2 in general going down and precipitating out as a calcite, as a scale in this big void space. That's more of a storage idea where it goes in as a gas, it converts into some kind of liquid or some kind of eventually a precipitate where it truly gets locked in a physical state in the subsurface. That would be a fascinating study to get rid of yeah. the CO2. And, and there is a, a group that's working on understanding 
mineralization caused by CO2. And that's where you're kind of going with this idea. I think uh, if we can not just have it be a natural byproduct, but if we can engineer it to be in a transport system that we uh, preferentially lock up, uh, like we see in nature with calcite field uh, fractures and, and things like that. Uh, yep, Ophi calcite, the huge bodies of serpentinite from the natural process of serpentinization that creates a massive rock around the planet that's very, very carbonate rich. If we could do something similar, we can make a man-made, that's a natural process, but maybe we can make that happen with uh, using this in the right environment, doing the right geologic study. I think it's, it's definitely very fascinating, and especially when you have the government involved, not just America, which is you know, leading the, I think, the, the front lines of new ideas and innovation and doing something like this with this anthropogenic product that we make. Uh, but other countries can get really involved in this and really help start developing it around the world. And, and it sounded like you guys had an AAPG convention just recently about specifically this. Was that a worldwide uh, event or was that mostly Americans? How, what, what was that like? That was a worldwide event. I'd say the majority of participants probably were from the U.S., but uh, we had uh, a wide variety from think every continent, maybe. I, I could be wrong about that, but uh, we had a wide range of participants anyway, and that's just the ones that were live. So I don't know about uh, the people who were entirely in uh, bedtime for the entire uh, <laughs> time of our physical meeting. And so those people would have been watching it later. And of course, not, not able to interact with us on the chats and things, but uh, I would not be surprised, let me say it that way if we didn't have someone, at least a few participants from every continent. Wow, that's fantastic. Fantastic. Skippo, anything else on uh, carbon sequestration? No, I think we, I mean, for the basis that we wanted to cover, I think we, we handled it pretty well. Yeah. I was going to say for, I got some questions for the completion segment, but yeah. Okay. Well, let Saves. me uh, just remind everybody that all, all those things that I said about the government participation, the taxes and things, that's just, uh, my opinion or what I've yeah. heard and it's not yeah. reference speculation. Nothing's set in stone. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think uh, since we did a lot of the society stuff and we talked about the APG and this upcoming event, we kind of led with that now transitioned to the carbon capture, which was a fascinating, you know, geologic uh, specific part of our drill down segment. Are you guys ready for the completion? Mm -hmm. I'm ready. Let's give it a shot. Let's give it a shot. So, <laughs> Uh, I'm going to try to run this again. I tried it last time. Let's see what happens. So Mr. Reigns, me and Skip started a podcast and we weren't sure exactly what was going to happen, but we knew and we, we were a part of this very unique network and that combining our thoughts and actions for the first time together created new information. And that new information gets applied to new real world applications. And I believe this show is ultimately about making discoveries, de-risking our time as professionals and geoscientists to make a difference. And that's what the PBE podcast has turned into. And sir, thank you so much for what you have done in the Permian Basin as a professional and as a member of the societies we all appreciate and we all are in support of. And now we are going to roll into the completion segment with Mr. Mike Rains. Okay, sir. So what is it from your perspective, now that we're kind of talking completion, the future of carbon sequestration specifically, then we'll get into the oil and gas industry. But I want to start with, where do you see the, the 
business and the career for geoscientists in carbon use and carbon sequestration? I think uh, this is going to be the key uh, environmental action, it's sustainability sort of uh, function that we're going to see for a while. Uh, plus, it's going to be a major increasing part of our total energy mix, at least here in the U.S., where we have a lot of uh, stranded resources that we can't get out with traditional methods. We can't afford to leave those resources behind. Uh, typical recovery in a field is anywhere from as low as 5% to maybe 35%. And using CO2, uh, you can expect in, in our normal EOR sort of operations to get at least an additional 10%, maybe a little bit more. <clears throat> so if we have a resource like CO2 that was available in a lot higher demand, then we wouldn't have to be so conservative with using it in the absolute best places. We could probably bump that 10% uh, up quite a bit. How many notches? I don't know. But if you had an unlimited supply of CO2, uh, you could sweep until you got as much as you could stand to get out uh, before you moved on to the next area or interval. Wow. So I see that as being a uh, valuable career path that's still going to be around mm -hmm. for 20 plus years. Well, I think you're going to be a mentor in what you're talking about. Yeah. You are an absolute, a very viable resource for all young professionals, for the AAPG, for the development of what we're talking about, your experience. Mm -hmm. This show has really opened my eyes to you are the guy you're like the pioneer almost in carbon usage of, of the Permian Basin almost you were close mm -hmm. to Texaco and starting in your thesis all tying into constantly thinking about co2 and how it's being oh, used. No. that's fascinating skip or real quick if you want to unshare your screen that'll get us all back to seeing oh. your normal size no. what do you got and I was going to say the same thing I mean for the most part, Mike, I mean, your career unbeknownst to you, not only have you had these, you know, impacts within the oil and gas industry, but, you know, this new technology that's coming out with carbon sequestration, you're going to be on the front lines of it because like Troy was saying, you pioneered this or helped pioneer the CO2 flooding within the Permian. So you are going to be the guy that's talking to all these young professionals telling them, hey, like, like Troy was talking about. We're in this dome setting, but as we get further out from the dome, we're going to lose seal integrity. Or when we're working in a limestone of this nature, these are things that could possibly precipitate or things that could happen. Or when we're working in a sand, like, because people just want to find space in the subsurface and inject CO2. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's just because it has perm and porosity doesn't mean we can put CO2 in it. Like that's, that's not where we start. Yeah, that, that's true. I want to back up and say, uh, you know, I'm old, but I'm not that old. So I, I really wasn't around to uh, help pioneer all the, the CO2 floods in the 70s or even the 80s. <laughs> you were close to it. You were close to it. You're at least. I was still in high school, Troy. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you are a portal. You are a portal to that old of, uh, of doing that and the pioneers that yeah. you learned about in, in your early career. You're That's how I see it. Uh, you're a pioneer to me. <laughs> Pioneer to you. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's all relative, right? So, yeah. yeah pioneer to <laughs> and skip. 
well, that is absolutely fascinating. I, I truly enjoyed getting to more more of your story, uh, Mr. Reigns, and and the fact that no question about it, we will be in contact and crossing paths and being your biggest fan as you develop mm-hmm. your company. It's called. Uh, tell us a little bit about your company and where do you where are you going with this? Yeah, well, before we do that, we we kind of just really lightly brushed over something. Uh, I think Skip may have mentioned it and you mentioned it within a minute and a half of each other. And I want to jump back to that before we talk about the company. And that is uh, seal integrity and knowing if we're here or not. That all is going to be tied into monitoring. Uh, in my time at, well, uh, most three of the companies that I worked for at at Texaco, Kinder Morgan, and Whiting, we were all working with a group up at Colorado School of Mines, a consortium called the Reservoir Characterization Project. And at that time, they were focusing on learning how to monitor CO2 with seismic. So this whole monitoring thing is going to be something that ties up a lot of geologic resources in the future. If you've mm-hmm. read uh, anything about these Uh, carbon capture and storage sites specifically, uh, they may want you to uh, ensure that that CO2 is going to be stable for 10,000 years, uh, 500 years, 100 years, and even for some of the uh, lower risk areas, uh, 50 years. So you're going to have to have geologic and geophysics integration to monitor those. Those are really the only ways we have to see where that plume is and what's happening to it. Is it expanding? Is it leaking off in a direction we didn't anticipate? Or is it stable? Wow. So let, let's not forget the monitoring yeah. aspect for a career development. That's mm-hmm. that's going to be a, a key component. Wow. And fantastic. I'm so glad yeah. you the monitoring is where the discovery is probably going to be made. We know kind of yeah. what the criminal makeup is going in. What's the elemental makeup coming out, right? What chains potentially, not just CO2, but everything, all the byproducts of that. So yeah, lot- and it, it'll it be interesting to see too. I mean, some of these areas where, you know, you'll shoot these surveys beforehand, right? These 4D surveys after tertiary recovery, right? How has this reservoir evolved from when we shot this survey, you know, when we were producing the primary oil versus, you know, 20 years down the road when we've been, you know, pumping water and CO2 into it. Yeah. And the, the ultimate vision, which we're, we're not quite there yet, but the ultimate vision is that you'll be able to, to take the before image, uh, correct for any changes that have happened in the reservoir quality, and then have the after image, which tells you this is where the CO2 plume is, and this is where dissolution has occurred. That's where uh, uh, precipitation has occurred, or at least where there's some changes, and we can infer what those changes are. And one of them being, where is the CO2 now and what's happening to it? Is it stabilizing? Is it dissolving into the, to the water in a way we didn't anticipate? Or is it on track to do what we thought it would do when we started this project? Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, risk reduction. No. That's right. Well, and, and for the characterization on the front end with your first survey too. Um, you know, you've, you guys have probably, yeah, yeah, I think you talked about it the, the last episode that I saw, you talked about shear waves. Mm-hmm. You can use the shear and P contrast to see where uh, heterogeneity is varying. And mm-hmm. you can infer from that uh, where you might have fractures, where you might have uh, preferred flow paths that might change the way you would model uh, the CO2 migration. Yeah. 
and its stability in the future. Yeah, so, exactly. And is that heterogeneity? Is that, you know, those fracture networks, are they healed? Are they still open? And yeah, you can start diving into those rabbit holes as well. But yeah. Right. And then you can say, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I see something that makes me nervous here. Uh, this heterogeneity mm-hmm. is telling me there's open fractures. Right. I'm no longer sure that this is a good site and I want to downgrade it and look at a, another site as a, a higher possible yeah. position. Uh, and, Love and, it. Yeah. Say that again, Troy. Lowering the risk. Yes. Lowering the risk. Predictions. Fantastic. Yeah. And so a big geologic uh, from both geophysics and geologic integration for finding those risk factors and mitigating them if you can, or uh, pointing them out to uh, managers and team members to make sure that you get the right places and that you don't have uh, something that you could have prevented as as far as a leak off. Mm -hmm. You want to control what you've got, whether you're using it for enhanced oil recovery or whether you're just putting it in the ground to store permanently. You want to know what happens to it and have some confidence that it's going to be where you said it would be. That's right. That's right. Fantastic. Mr. Rains, please tell us a little bit about your company. How did it start? What are you focusing on? How do you see the future going for your company? Okay. Uh, My company name is uh, Mars Exploration and Energy Incorporated, or LLC, excuse me. And uh, it started when I left uh, Whiting Petroleum. I decided to to take that opportunity uh, to go out on my own a little bit, do some consulting, uh, the idea is that I would be focused on enhanced oil recovery uh, and maybe CCS and CCUS options, uh, which I've done a little bit of, but uh, in reality, uh, with uh, the demand that it, level that we are at right now and with the COVID problems, uh, I'm just really doing uh, some reservoir characterization, uh, salt water disposal. It, it's, it's a variety of things. And uh, just now, partnering with some people to see about bringing uh, oil and gas projects forward, uh, doing some evaluations at that stage now. Cool. Hopefully to be offering some other services uh, soon, like uh, core related items, uh, tracking core from the the well bore all the way into the lab and making sure that the clients get what they want out of it because uh, um, sometimes there's a disconnect between what you get in a bid and what you get uh, in end results or between what you said to the res to the company and what they heard when they did the analysis so um, uh, my uh, concept there for that service would be to uh, integrate everything uh, follow it all the way through uh, be the communication key and make sure that the goals you want to achieve are really what the company understands, not uh, give me a bid on X, Y, and Z process, but get me to this end point. Mm-hmm. That is a company in itself. You said all kinds of things, reservoir characterization, carbon use and storage. I mean, the, the simple fact of your experience of all the service companies and all the operators trying to come together, integrate for a project, and, and make sure that we're saying the same thing. My approximation of the reality of this project is the same <laughs> as yours, or at least similar. And having you being able to be that point of contact for companies, oh my gosh, worth mm-hmm. your gold, sir. Yeah, that, that would be, a, my hope is that 
even if you're, if you give them the, the end point that you want to get to, and I can communicate that clearly with them, that if they have an idea that says, well, you asked for X, Y, and Z to lead to A, but it would, it would be better if we did B plus C to get to A uh, and have those conversations uh, go through seamlessly and uh, not have any uh, difficulties with uh, uh, language use or uh, terminology or mm -hmm. end yeah. goals, just to have everybody be on the same page. Yeah. With P, I was going for A, ended up with P. I don't understand. How did yeah. I? <laughs> yes. And why did you give me that? Man, that's fantastic. Good work and uh, super excited to see how that develops and, and obviously your development in the, in the societies. How's that going? Or if Skips, you have anything specific about his company uh, before I want to know more about where he's going with society? No, no, no. No, keep going. Yeah. Keep, keep the train rolling. Keep the train rolling. Uh, yeah. Speaking of trains, here's a little trivia for you, Troy. I, no one knows this except uh, some of my family members. I was a tour guide slash train engineer on a uh, little 16 gauge railroad in Caldera Canyon in, in college. So uh, <laughs> the train was rolling then too. Right. Uh, I love that. <laughs> oh, that's great. It always comes full circle. It always yeah. comes full circle. <laughs> sometimes little circles, sometimes big circles. Yeah. Sometimes big ones. <laughs> now, with that all being said, are you in pursuit of the presidency of the APG or if, if more responsibility with the societies? Or are you, you comfortable where everything's at and how you're supporting role and everything you're currently doing? How, where do you see yourself in society? Well, I am uh, currently president of PDS SEPM and uh, treasurer of BPA. And then on, uh, well, something that I should have talked about a lot earlier is the AAPG's technical interest group for carbon capture use and storage, the CCUS TIG or TIG, if you prefer. So uh, since you brought this up, let me invite everybody who's interested in carbon capture use and storage, that's an AAPG member especially, to uh, get on there, search for that TIG and uh, join us. Uh, we're we're not very active on the on the website right now, but I would like to have that improve. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where my society involvement is going to mostly be right now. I'm still a WTGS uh, delegate to the House of Delegates until 2022. Uh, don't plan to change that any. Um, need some help with uh, Permian Basin Section SEPM. If uh, any of your audience members are already members, uh, you can contact me. I'm looking for some people to run for the board next year. And we're getting to the end of that cycle. It's time to put the officer elections together. So, uh, oh, that reminds me also, if you're not currently a member of PBS SEPM and you want to be, you can pay now be a member in good standing for the rest of this year and your dues will take you all the way to the end of next year. So June of 2022 for the same price and you can vote in the elections. You can run for officer. So interested, come on down. <laughs> right on. And you visit the website to get all that information, get all logged into that. Yeah. www.pbs-sepm.org. Cool. So it's not a com, it's an org. Right. I got All right. 
I got the letter from the WTGS. It was it was great to see how many people were uh, applying for presidency. Dave Cannon going for president of the WTGS. We had uh, all kinds of people and people new people, Chevron folks, and uh, who was the, there was another big company in there. Maybe it was Exxon. Can't remember. It was I mean just great to see and uh, and and let's let's keep going down this path. I love mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yep. Uh... Plan to just uh, stay with WTGS as House of Delegates for for myself right now, and see where that goes. Maybe uh, back off a little bit. Um, I'll be treasurer of uh, Division of Professional Affairs and AAPG for another year, so that'll keep me uh, busy. We're we've got a lot of changes coming down the pike in DPA. Uh, we're looking at the possibility of doing a worldwide uh, certification for geologists, and well, also uh, looking at subject matter expert certification. So you can uh, take some courses. um, uh, Mostly I think they're gonna be online courses and get your uh, knowledge up to speed, take a test and uh, have your peers uh, provide uh, a a certificate, a a number. I don't know exactly how that's gonna work yet, but have a designation for you that says, uh, yes, Troy Tillmeyer is completed this uh, training. He's passed this test. It's a worldwide recognized rigorous test and he is a subject matter in X. So uh, you can check out the uh, DPA's LinkedIn page uh, for a survey about that. I think if you, if you want to say I'd like to contribute to what I think is important for subject matter expert experts, this one's not important. That one is, you know, those sort of questions will be out there. So anybody who's interested in uh, participating with that, especially AAPG members and especially, especially Division of Professional Affairs members, uh, that's out there and you can uh, provide some input. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. I think that is the end of the completion segment of the PB podcast, Mr. Mike Rains. And I hope to see you at the AAPG SEG convention. Uh, looking forward to everything that developed there with the AAPG and uh and 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 just the society i'm looking forward to people how many people show up and what happens there i think we'll be there we're, we're certainly going to work hard to be there so yeah uh, mm-hmm. i'm going to try to be there too and you know that's uh uh where uh, the mars society is located and uh the 20 year 22 is the 50th anniversary of the only geologist to ever walk on the moon harrison jack schmidt so I uh, don't know if the AAPG Astrogeology Committee is going to have a celebration in Denver or if that might be the next year back in Houston, but uh, stay tuned for that. Watch out yeah. for it. Uh, there might be something there to make it even more fun to go to the AAPG SEG convention in Denver. Cool. Always fun. We'll definitely All right. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Yep. All right. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Great talking to you, Mike. Yeah, you too, Skip. You are tuned in to the PBE podcast where we're taking new information, applying it to new real world applications to make discoveries. We got to stop and take a minute and thank our sponsors, BRT Energy Advisors, Better Reservoir Technologies, Results Without the BS. We've had Alan on our show, and I can tell you from experience, he definitely has seen seismic from around the world, including, of course, right here in the Permian Basin. If you are in the EMP business and you want to use seismic data to increase the value of your assets, 
assets or if you want to drill safer wells at lower costs using seismic, then you got to get a hold of Alan Bertain and work with his team at BRT Energy Advisors. If you check out our podcast from episode 70, you'll see that not only he understands geophysics, business and people, but he also explains complicated subjects in a clear and simple way. Visit them at www.brtenergy.com forward slash PBE.